being a CEO and what it takes isn't just a generic set of skills. You have to be grounded in what does the company need of its next CEO and have the honest reflection to yourself and dialogues with others of given where the company's going, given the track that it's going to be on, what are the skills required of that CEO? And are you the best fit for that? From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Carolyn Dewar, one of our two guests today for a conversation about preparing for the CEO role. This is the latest chapter in our ongoing research into CEO excellence. If you haven't already listened to our earlier episodes on leadership lessons from the world's best CEOs and starting strong as a new CEO, we invite you to do so. We'll also include links to those episodes in the show notes, along with links to our Voices of CEO Excellence series of interviews with James Gorman, Stephen Schwarzman, and Ken Frazier. Now, on to today's episode. Carolyn is a senior partner in our San Francisco office who founded and co-leads our CEO Excellence practice. She works directly with Fortune 100 client CEOs to help them maximize their effectiveness in the role. Carolyn, thanks so much for being here today. Super. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to be here. Also with us today is Vic Malhotra, a senior partner in our New York office, who's one of our firm's most senior client advisors. Vic has served on our board of directors and is our managing partner of the Americas, and he currently focuses on counseling CEOs and boards. Vic, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sean. It's a real pleasure and privilege. Appreciate it. Hi, Carolyn and Vic. I should also note that you co-authored, along with Scott Keller, the New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, which has also served as a foundation for this latest research. So before we get into what you need to do to become a high potential CEO candidate, let's get a bit of background. Vic, what did the CEO interviews that you did for the book suggest for those who hope to become excellent CEOs themselves? The book itself is is based on 67 interviews with some outstanding CEOs. And the first thing we did coming out of these interviews was to really define what is it that excellent CEOs, and frankly, not just excellent CEOs, but other CEOs and leaders do uh, as they lead. And we boiled it down to these six elements around setting the direction, aligning the organization, mobilizing through leaders, engaging the board, connecting with stakeholders, and finally, and importantly, managing your personal effectiveness as a leader. Now, these six things in themselves are not rocket science in any way, but some of the key insights that came out were the following. We discovered that great CEOs, and, and frankly, by implication, great leaders, tend to do all six of these responsibilities really well all of the time. We were quite struck by this. You didn't find excellent CEOs who were great at setting the direction, but less good at aligning the organization, or great at engaging the board, but less good at mobilizing through leaders. They tended to be people who could do all six of these things really well all of the time. So that was one big insight for us. The second big insight was they tended to be great integrators. They really brought all of these pieces together really well. I was always struck by a quote from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, when we interviewed him. He said, you know, at the end of the day, it's an information asymmetry problem. As a great CEO or as a great leader, you see more than anyone else in your organization, no matter how good or effective your organization is. And, but, and of course, almost by definition, you see more than the people you report to, particularly if you're a CEO and you've got 
10 or 12 bosses on the on, on your board of directors. And so the importance and the power and the relevance of integration across the organization is really, really critical. And the final big insight, which is really what in many ways the book is based on and where some of the things we will talk about today come back into play, is the great mindsets that these great leaders bring uh, to the role. So for example, with setting the direction, this mindset of be bored is really critical as it plays out in terms of vision, in terms of inorganic and organic moves, and in terms of resource allocation in particular. I was very struck when we interviewed Ajay Banga, for example, the CEO of MasterCard, who took MasterCard from $17 billion to $315 billion in market cap during his eight-and-a-half-year tenure, uh, when Ajay's vision was very bold. He didn't want to just go after the traditional credit card opportunity. His vision was around this notion of kill cash, and he really brought that to life for the organization in terms of new technologies, new approaches, going after the debit card market and the like. So you kind of really see that boldness play out with these great leaders and indeed important for aspiring CEOs as well. I think the mindset around aligning the organization and treating the soft stuff as the hard stuff is also a pretty critical one. Uh, And you saw that play out with a lot of people when it came to uh, this this notion of uh, culture and talent. And the final mindset I would just highlight is when it came to mobilizing through leaders and solving for the team psychology, a lot of these great CEOs focused on this notion of how do you really create not just a team of stars, but a star team. Thanks so much, Vic. And in recent months, you've held a series of conversations with leading CEOs that we've featured on our podcast. In your conversation with Steve Schwarzman, the CEO of the Blackstone Group, he made one comment that seems relevant to those who aspire to the CEO role, which was that outstanding leaders are actually built, not born. Do you agree with that? I completely agree with Steve. Well, you know, it's back to the old debate around, you know, nurture versus nature, right? And, and look, obviously, at some level, great leaders are born. You come to it with some level of DNA and drive and background and education, all of that stuff. But I think that's a small part of it. I think for the most part, these great leaders built their skills over time. They put in the time and the energy to do so. I, I very much reflect on the fact that with many of these mindsets, a lot of the great CEOs of today would say, the eight or 10 roles that I did leading up to being the CEO really prepared me to be bored when it came to setting direction, really prepared me to treat the soft stuff as the hard stuff when it came to aligning the organization, really prepared me to do what only I can do when it came to my own leadership model and leadership style. Those are learned skills and they learned them over time. So in general, I would agree with Steve, recognizing that, of course, you know, certain aspects of who you are innately as a human being certainly certainly help in terms of uh, how you lead. Thank you. And when you were interviewing the CEOs for the book, is there one or two things they told you they wished they had known as they embarked on the journey before they actually came into the role? Uh, I think they would say, many of them said to us, we didn't perform as well as we could have in year one. And a lot of that came down to time management and energy management, a lot of the managing personal effectiveness. So I think they say, no matter what you read, you know, when you're actually enrolled, the time demands and the en- energy demands on you are higher than you think. And then I think the second thing they said was, 
at engaging the board and connecting with stakeholders. It's a little bit of, again, no matter how much you read, till you're in the role, you know, it's hard to kind of really understand how you do well at that. So even though you may have wished to have known more, the, the chances are no matter how much you read, how much you thought you were prepared, you weren't really quite well, as well prepared as you thought you were going to be around those dimensions in particular. So Carolyn, did you find that as well, that the CEOs that you spoke with were surprised by the demands and scope of the job? I think one of the things we heard consistently across the CEOs we talked to is they were surprised. Even having had big jobs, big PL leaders, led geographies, led BUs, they thought they would be ready. They thought they knew what it would be. And they're consistently surprised. And I think part of the reason we had such great uptake on the interviews was a willingness and a desire to share some of that with the next generation of leaders and say, here's what I wish I'd known. 68% of the CEOs said, in hindsight, they were unprepared. The job isn't what they thought. And there were blind spots. There were gaps that they weren't ready for. And you layer on top of that the fact that 30% of CEOs today don't make it past three years in role, right? That the scrutiny and the expectations are so high that you really need to hit the ground running. The responsibilities, especially on board and some of the external pieces are unlike any that another role can prepare you for. And it's lonely. So once you get there, who do you talk to? How do you think it through? So we really wanted to embark on once we had done this research, well, okay, if that's true, how do we improve those odds? How do we help people feel more prepared so that when they step into those shoes, they're ready to go? Because frankly, it's not just an impact on them as a leader, but the the organizations they lead, right? How do we make sure they're they're receiving CEOs who are ready to do the job and we don't have the frictional cost um, as much as we need to have someone getting up to speed? Great. So now we're getting to the core of today's topic. How did you approach this research on becoming an exceptional CEO candidate? So that was the research that came next, right? We started looking at each stage of the CEO journey, preparing for the role, being a new CEO, mid-tenure, exiting the role and finishing strong. And as we dive in on the preparing for the role, here's what we found. We really stepped back and said, Imagine it being several years out from the role. So this isn't, you know, gosh, I'm about to step into the shoes tomorrow, or I'm already in the midst of the interview process, right? That very last mile. If you have the time to really think a few years out and say, how would I get ready if I aspire to be a CEO candidate one day, or if I'm someone who supports the leadership development in my organization, how do I help people get ready? So your article talks about four key dimensions of preparation. Why don't you take us through the first one? So this first insight around really taking the time to step back and assess your motivations and expectations. Do you understand what the CEO job is anyway? Right. In a way, that was the first part of our book research was what even is the job? How do you demystify it so that you know what you're aspiring to? what it is, what it isn't, maybe what are some of the aspects of the job that you had underestimated, but really immersing yourself in what is the role? Do I understand it? Do I want it? And if you want it, why? And I think it was this point of why of the motivations that really came through in our conversations with the CEOs. Satya Nadella talked about it being a 24-7 job, right? Mary Barra talked about it's it's all-consuming. And while that's exciting and you're 
chance to have huge impact across multiple stakeholders is so significant. It's also rather daunting. And several CEOs talked about how the the buzz of, quote, getting the job or that honeymoon period wears off very quickly. So if your motivation was just to get the job, not have the job, and what does it mean to actually be in that role for a long time? That's going to wane. We had really good discussions with the CEOs about, well, what are the helpful mindsets? What are the helpful motivations for someone who wants to test with themselves their, their aspirations in the job? Why do you want the role? What does it look like? And what are the mindsets that, frankly, don't serve you well? Uh, Bill Campbell, who was he himself a CEO three times and is known as sort of a CEO whisperer, certainly here in the Bay Area, even admitted that many CEOs secretly think that the job right before CEO can be a better job, right? Because with, with great opportunity comes huge responsibility. So if this is truth serum time, right? If you really think to yourself, is it that I want to get the job because I want to be picked? And that'll be validating for me. That's what I know. I'm not saying you would tell that to someone at a, at a, a cocktail party, but really, if you think in yourself, is that what's motivating you? Because frankly, that, that will die down quickly afterwards. And now the prize for eating the most pie is more pie, right? You now have the job and it's a privilege to serve, right? Ken Chenault, the former CEO of American Express, talks about if you want to lead, you have to be committed to serve. And that was the mindset that really came through. Another CEO talked about how every night he feels like he tucks in all of his stakeholders before he goes to bed, right? His many thousands of employees, the communities he operates in, the customers that he serves. So this notion that every day you're waking up thinking about the impact that you can help drive through others across all the stakeholders and the importance of the decisions you're making, is that the motivation? It cannot be all about you. Ajay Banga, I think, was the one who or talked about he walks in in the morning and he sees the chair and he's very conscious that he is occupying that chair for some brief period of time and the goal is to leave it better than you found it. It's really easy to get spun up in the excitement of the role, people making you feel important. And in those quiet moments, before you think about preparing, it's worth really thinking about is, is this a job I really want and do I want it for the right reasons? The last point of reflection on this one was a quote from Greg Case at Aon. And he was saying part of the reflection period is not just yourself, but it is for your family or your friends or whoever is in your life. I think he had the quote of, uh, you volunteer, but they're conscripted. As you step into a CEO role that is all consuming, it is worth also having those conversations about what will it mean and what are the kinds of trade-offs and, and norms that we're going to put in place in our broader life so that you're managing that as well as you go on this journey. So you mentioned Mary Barra at GM, and you interviewed a number of other very successful female CEOs for your book. Did you see any differences between the men and the women in terms of the mindsets or areas of emphasis in their preparation to ascend to the CEO role? I think as you think about CEO candidates or folks who are, who are coming through, I do think there might be some differences. I haven't done the empirical research but there's certainly lots of research out there around, you know, a, a, a tendency towards men putting their hat in the ring for a promotion when they have 40% of the qualifications and women will do it if they only have 90, right? I mean, that's not our research, that's others. But there's indications as you think about even imagining yourself as a candidate. 
I think it's a really good check on ask ask your your closest advisors, ask people around you, what could you aspire to? What could you be? Because I think you might be surprised by the answers. Sean, I would I would highlight one uh, difference that I that I personally picked up on. And by the way, I would completely agree with Carolyn. When you get to looking at the truly excellent CEOs, male or female, they tend to really share these uh, these these six mindsets in a very in a very consistent way, right? And by the way, they do all six of them really well all of the time as well. The one slight difference, if I could point to it, was I did feel that the women CEOs were particularly distinctive on this mindset, uh, on this responsibility around mobilizing their teams and solving for the team psychology. Relatively speaking, and this is off a very high bar, they overinvested in this in a very, very big way in terms of you know, really putting in the time and energy around thinking about the composition of their team, the cadence of the team, what the teams worked on, how they motivated people. I think the really excellent women CEOs, if I could say, just were just that tiny bit more over-invested than their male counterparts of that. That is the only thing that I might uh, that I might point to as a small difference. But in general, I would agree with the thesis that these excellent CEOs all share very, very similar characteristics, regardless of gender, but also regardless of geographic location, regardless of sector, sector backgrounds, really do share a lot of these commonalities. Very interesting. So now let's turn to the second dimension to stepping up effectively. Vic, can you take us through that? So the second uh, area that we wanted to highlight uh, as people think about stepping up to being a CEO is this whole notion of elevate your perspective while boldly delivering results. And just three big, biggish points, I think, to make against this. So the first is really deliver on your day job. The truth of the matter is I, I, have, I, I can't think of a great CEO or a CEO period uh, who was put into the job having done a mediocre job in their prior role. So this notion of delivering and excelling on your current job is the best pathway uh, to making sure that you are in the consideration set and potentially uh, the next CEO of the organization that you work for or potentially a CEO elsewhere, right? So this, uh, you know, everyone will ultimately look at your track record, ultimately will look at what have you done and what have you delivered. Uh, Mary Barra, GM, when we, when we interviewed her, was terrific on this. She said, do the job you're doing today like you're going to do it for the rest of your life, uh, because that means you're going to invest in it and, it going to, and you're going to make it better. And that is critical. So that's the first uh, piece that we would emphasize. The second thing when it comes to elevating your perspective is as you approach being a CEO, what we find is that the greatest leaders really do climb onto this higher balcony and do really kind of think about the future the company, its stakeholders, and the like. And just to kind of bring that to life a little bit, they start building a really intense perspective on the future of the industry and, frankly, the future of the company in terms of where it might go uh, in relation to the future of the uh, of the industry. I always say to people who are keen to be the next generation CEOs, have you written down what you, where you believe the industry is going? And have you written down where you think your institution fits in that world. Uh, just in two pages. This doesn't need to be a big detailed 
write up, but have you kind of just written down for yourself where you would take this company if you were the CEO? Because somebody's going to ask you that down the road. And having a relatively clear view of that is a good thing to always have. So having this view of the future, having your own perspectives of where the company ought to go, which you're undoubtedly putting into the mix as a part of the leadership team in any event. Also, elevating yourself from the company point of view. You know, people have are in a particular role. They obviously have to deliver on the day job, as I just said. But also for the company itself, can you get involved in cross in industry, uh, cross business uh, issues? Can you get involved in committees? Can you get involved in the initiatives that will allow you to elevate your perspective on the company? And finally, because this does end up being such a big part of the CEO job, as you climb onto this higher balcony, are you building a perspective on the stakeholders more broadly? And I, by that, I don't just mean investors and analysts, which are easy for all of us to focus on, but the stakeholders that are represented by trade unions and regulators, customers, uh, employees. There's just a broad range of stakeholders that CEOs eventually have to deal with. And the third and final piece that I would just el- emphasize as you elevate your perspective is continue to be bored. Continue to be bored, whether it's related to your own role or whether it's related to the company. Because the bottom line is no one was ever incremental in the in in their attitude and their perspectives prior to becoming CEOs. Continuing to maintain this notion of uh, this mindset of being bored, which we call out a, a lot uh, when we when we wrote our, our CEO excellence book is absolutely a critical element. All right. So let's be bold. And let's say you've got ideas that are both bold, but also perhaps ahead of where some of your stakeholders or colleagues are. How have you seen executives actually navigate that successfully? I think, Sean, in many ways, this whole notion of being bold and being visionary, whether it's on inorganic, organic moves, resource allocation, it's often easier for a CEO to do it. I think at the heart of the question is, hmm, if you're that one step below the CEO, now how do you kind of bring the CEO along? How do you bring your team along? And ultimately, if it's that board, how is the board of directors and others going to get involved? And ultimately, I think it comes down to two, two or three things. Number one, I think you've got to completely believe in your vision of where you've got to go. And by, it's got to be geared in facts and not, not just a, a, a pipe dream. It's got to be geared in facts and real you know, real, real understanding of why it's going to make a difference for the company and elevate the company to a whole, whole different level. By the way, manage it against risk aspect attributes as well. And then, you know, you know, the thing that I've seen people practice, and by the way, a lot of the great CEOs were in our book practiced it in their prior roles, is it's a lot about syndication, 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 right? Your CEO may not in, you know, your CEO may not yet be willing to go there. You've got to get them on that journey, right? You've got to coach them. You've got to advise them. You've got to talk to them. And yes, it may not be doable in one meeting. It may take 10 meetings. It may not be doable in a three-month time period. It might take a year or two to get done. But that that process of syndication, just bringing people on board, is what I see great people do. You know, you can't, you can't get ahead of the team. You've got to bring the team along whether it's the CEO we are reporting to or your own team, uh, you got to bring them along. And Carolyn, anything you'd like to add there? No, I think the only add would be this notion of do your current day job well, right? And so there's probably more degrees of freedom for boldness 
within your current mandate, right? So is your function or business acting boldly? Is it winning? Is it doing all the great things? And then you're a contributor to the broader agenda, right? Where you can voice, you can influence, you can bring along, but you're not the CEO yet. Excellent. Vic, you talked about the importance of getting a broader view. Now, there's been a long-held debate about external CEOs versus internal CEO candidates and, and how external hires are often able to bring fresh ideas or fresh eyes to a new company that they might join. For someone who's a potential internal CEO candidate, do you have any advice that you'd share for how they too can develop that external perspective, but as an internal candidate? Yeah, look, I would say that the the uh, uh, and we write about this in our book. Uh, this is true of CEOs as well as people aspiring to be CEOs. I think you've always got to think like an outsider. And by the way, let's be clear: eighty percent of very successful CEOs are internal candidates, right? So it's not like the world's going external all the time. But many of these great internal candidates are people who think like outsiders. They think around the notion of. If a private equity company were to buy us, what would they do? If a activist were to come here, you know, what is the kinds of thesis they might have? And then the other thing about an external perspective is it's always good to have, if I can call it your own board of directors that have some external constituencies that can push your thinking beyond the pushing that's happening to your thinking internally. And this could be, you know, whether it's consultants, lawyers, bankers. Uh, friends, you know, colleagues from prior jobs you've had that are now in other institutions, you should have some sounding boards that are outside the institution so that they can push your thinking as well. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Carolyn, the next point is about rounding out your experience and profile. And what does that really involve? In the article, you mentioned doing it with humility. So it'd be great if you could elaborate on that, please. And it's in many ways continuing the conversation because this piece is all about what are the things you can do to to build your own skill set, right? And to be ready in your, in your own development path. It's funny, it turns out if you ask people in general, do they think they're above average in terms of their driving ability? Do you think you're above average? 80% of people will say yes, right? That's sort of statistically impossible, but true. The same with likability. Something like 87% of people think they're in the top 10% of likability. There's an inbuilt bias that we have that we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't think it was the right thing. And so when we think about really stepping back and thinking about your development plan to CEO, there's a couple of steps that are really critical, right? The first is to objectively assess your capabilities against what's needed. So I think it was Brad Smith at at Intuit when we talked to him who used a, a horse racing analogy. He said, the reason there's very few triple crown winners is because the Kentucky Derby is a very different track than the Belmont and et cetera. These tracks are actually different, right? The right horse for the right track. And he used that same analogy saying being a CEO and what it takes isn't just a generic set of skills. You have to be grounded in what does the company need of its next CEO and have the honest reflection to yourself and dialogues with others of given where the company's going, given the track that it's going to be on, what are the skills required of that CEO? And are you the best fit for that? Right? We'll often sit with boards or candidates or even retiring CEOs to say, what's the future for this company? What does this next era need to be about? Is it about growth? Is it about innovation? Is it about 
efficiency. What is it about? And what does that imply in terms of the knowledge, the skills, the experience, frankly, the mindsets or leadership qualities of the type of leader we're going to need for that next era? And to I love Vic's provocation of write it down, right? If you actually sat and wrote it down, given the future, my thesis on the future of where the business is going, what would be my thesis of the qualities of leadership that would be critical to have? And then how am I doing against those, right? Where are there ones that I both already have the skills and frankly, proof points to be convincing that, that I'm ready and there? And where would I have some blind spots or some openings where I need to round out my experience? One of those that's quite common is the external piece, right? We talked about how the board, the external stakeholders is a surprise to many new CEOs. If you're several years out, and obviously you would need the approval of your CEO on board to do this, but being on a board yourself isn't a bad idea, right? It's a chance to actually sit on the other side, even if it's a you know, private board or even a not-for-profit board, having been on a board and seen what the conversation really is when the executive director or the CEO is out of the rule, out of the room. Having that exposure is, is one example um, of building out their skill set and their exposure and their opportunities that a lot of CEOs have pointed back at and said, that was extremely helpful. It made me realize that board governance is very different to what I thought it was. If you've come up through a certain function or a certain business, how do you get exposure to the other parts of the business? Right? If you've never been on an investor call or an earnings call and never been the one to have to present, how do you start getting some of those reps, some of those experiences? Because that will be an important criteria that the board and others will be looking for. And this isn't just about checking the boxes for some criteria for the CEO job. Frankly, these types of things make you a great leader and round out your experience, even in your current role. Right, It's about broadening your view learning, getting an external perspective, as Vic was talking about, understanding what it means to have an enterprise view as opposed to just your own silo, and even getting chances to practice some of the skills of operating at a bigger scale. This doesn't necessarily mean to change jobs or to rotate jobs. Sometimes it's a stretch assignment. It's a an enterprise initiative you can co-lead on behalf of others that'll give you that chance to build out your chops of influencing broadly. But it all starts with being an honest assessment of where, what is the responsibility of the role? What would be required of the leader? Where am I on that? And then what are some very practical things I can do to round out my experiences? This is something you can engage others in as well um, to the extent that it's appropriate, right? Sometimes people know that they're on a short list or a, a potential, potential succession plan. And it's a good conversation to have. Well, what experiences can we create to help me round out that that last piece. I think it's important to not playing politics in the process. This isn't about cutting down others or kind of you know working a process that's so transparent to an organization. But what are the things you'll do to be a better leader, whether it's here or somewhere else? And then there's an element of, you know, are you going to be the right person in the right time for that company? You can't control that, but you can control how you show up as a leader. So that's this development phase that's so critical and take advantage of it, right? This is your chance to, to do those things. You know, it sounds like becoming a high potential CEO candidate actually requires a lot of effort. And over an extended period of time, this could be energy draining. So how should or how do um, great CEO candidates balance their time and energy to actually excel at that while also excelling in their day job? 
I think it's about finding the end, right? It's that Mary Barra quote of, you know, doing doing great in your current job is the best thing that you can do because all the things we talked about for the most part would serve you in your current role. So this is really being deliberate about your leadership development in place and thinking about what are maybe some blind spots. When was the last time you got feedback? When was the last time you really listened to where you might have areas to round out? This is not about going down a whole rabbit hole of things that are getting preoccupied with a race to CEO and taking your eye off the ball, which is your current day job. Should be things that that serve both. Okay, so in your experience, are there roles in an organization that are particularly strong launching pads for the CEO job? Um, and perhaps, you know, ones that go beyond leading you know, the largest business unit or the biggest function. I think there's a range, right? Obviously, any folks who are ready for the CEO role have had big jobs, often more than one big job, right? Big P&L, big BU, big function. You do see a lot of CFOs as well. I think it can come from different paths. I think the question is, given your path and your experience, what might be the blind spot that you have? Right. And so if you've come up through, you know, an operational role, that's terrific. You're a great operator. How much external exposure have you had? How much, you know, uh, board interaction or investor interaction? If you're the CFO, you're probably super on that. Right. But have you led a big change effort? Have you had to do something hard where you influence across the organization? So there's probably some patterns for what the development edge is for different roles. Um, but we've seen folks come from from a variety of places, including all the way from the bottom. Right. You know, Mary Barra started at 18 as an engineering intern. I think, oh, sir, go ahead, Vic. No, look, it, it, I would just say that uh, it's probably too late at this point if we're, you know, three years out or five years out from becoming the potential Lexio. But if I were going back in time, I would just say to people get a broad range of exposures over your career, right? Having, a, to, to me, I think boards care that people have had a range of experiences. They haven't been in a narrow, singular part of the organization their entire career. Uh, and so I think having that broader range of experiences, rotations through, uh, you know, three, four, five, eight, ten roles that have given you both the BU experience, the functional experience, growth initiative experiences, to me, those are pretty important. Oh, thank you both. Um, so now we're on to the final key aspect, which is understanding the selection process and putting your best foot forward. I would think the process might be somewhat different for every organization. So let's start with how to best understand the selection process as a potential candidate. Now, every company's unique. Every company is a little different. Every company's got its own process that it puts in place. But a fairly typical archetype, particularly if it's a competitive selection process, is one where the board of directors will engage a headhunting firm. They 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 spend a lot of time on, on on this topic. They will put in a process whereby they try and identify the internal candidates, probably bring a couple of external candidates into the mix. And so kind of just figuring out whether that's the process that's underway or whether there's a more internally driven process that's underway, whether it's board-led, which it typically is, or whether the CEO's got a disproportionate say in the process. Understanding that process will is is critical to putting putting your best foot forward and then once you're part of the process you've got to articulate your bold vision for what the company can do and what if you were the next ceo you might do to deliver against it i talked earlier when we were talking about the uh, the second dimension around you know write it down 
you know, this comes to the point uh, where, you know, writing it down is particularly critical because you're going to have to articulate what your vision for the company is. Now, sometimes that, that ends up being a bit of a fine line to walk because you might want to have a truly bold vision, uh, which, you know, you might worry about whether it's going to resonate with the board of directors or the current CEO because it starts questioning some of the things the company might have done historically. So you kind of might want to say, well, how do I scale that back a little bit? But in general, I think our advice would be, if you've got a bold perspective, if you've got a bold vision, if you've got a bold sense of where the company's going to be, if you're going to be going out there and establishing the North Star for where you as the future CEO might take the company in the next five to eight years, I think it's very it's very important to be uh, articulate and clear about it. I I'll come back to Satya Nadella here. You know, I think everyone assumed that Microsoft in 2014 was going to go out and get an external CEO. And he came into that boardroom with a very bold vision about where he wanted to take Microsoft and cloud and gaming and a number of other areas. And I personally believe that really helped him get this job, get the job. And so uh, uh, to me, that's a critical dimension. Quick one on that, I think. The, the other piece is it actually helps you establish your mandate so that if and when you get the job, you're aligned with the board of what you're going to do, right? You don't want to not have that and then find yourself in a job that you're not excited about. Yeah, well put, Carolyn. Thank you. And the second dimension I would highlight is, is, is formulating crisp and compelling answers to anticipated questions. You know, I, I, I'll tell you that I've seen some great CEO candidates who have put a lot of time and energy into the pre pre preparation here, going through with close advisors, mock interviews, uh, where you're really pushed in terms of the questions you're asked, the answers you give, the very personal nature of some of the questions that could get asked, uh, really kind of, you know, formulating those crisp and compelling answers. And then the final piece of advice I think we would have on this dimension is to remain true to your authentic self. Uh, you know, at this point, we are all who we are in terms of leaders. We're not about to change our styles dramatically. And so authenticity matters. Being true to your authentic self matters. The key, though, in being as authentic as you can be, uh, being the best best authentic leader you can be, is to really make sure you're managing your energy during this process. It can be sapping to you uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a leader uh, as you go through this. Sometimes I've seen these processes stretch out for 12 months, 18 months, um, so it can be draining. Uh, thanks so much, Vic. I, I guess this really does point to the importance, the critical importance of keeping up your energy level while also um, maintaining success in your day job. So as we close out, where do you plan to take the research next? So obviously the book was the first part of it. We've actually already published a piece on the next dimension, which is the new CEO, uh, starting strong, uh, making your CEO transition a catalyst for renewal the two next articles we're going to come out is mid-tenure CEOs. And in Q3, we will also have an article on finishing strong, the exiting CEO. How do you finish strong? How do you think about CEO succession and the like? That sounds fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to welcoming you back when you've covered the next phases of the CEO journey. Carolyn and Vic, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. This has been really fun. Thank you for having us. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can find our earlier podcasts on CEO excellence, as well as Vic's interviews with Blackstone's Steve Schwarzman, 
Morgan Stanley's James Gorman, and Merck's Ken Frazier at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, which stands for Inside the Strategy Room. And you can also search for Inside the Strategy Room on your favorite podcast player. We are including links for all of these episodes in the show notes today. And as always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. And if you enjoy this episode and you'd like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And again, this is where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available again at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily search all of our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, just sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.